You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. If God would do one thing for you, what would you ask of him? Throughout my life, I've answered this question in different ways and at different times, depending on how old I was. Uh, I remember um, when I was a teenager, I played sports year-round, baseball, football, even basketball, bowling, if you call that a sport, all kinds of sports, and then I broke my pelvic bone. So before I broke my pelvic bone, I was asking God to make me something, you know, of an athlete or famous or whatever it was. After I broke my pelvic bone and I could no longer play baseball or football or basketball, I couldn't sprint anymore. I couldn't run track in those ways. Uh, My whole life changed. I started asking God to help me to find a new identity. Later in life, my wife and I, when we decided to try to get pregnant, we weren't getting pregnant. We were asking God on a regular basis to have a baby. And then we weren't getting pregnant, we're getting pregnant. And finally, my wife had an ectopic pregnancy where the baby gets caught in the fallopian tube. And um, when we found that out, my prayers changed from God give us a baby to Lord spare my wife's life as she had to go to emergency surgery. The list could go on and on and on. But I find that I often ask God for things out of my own desires, what's going on in my heart, what I see as the best possible future for me. And so those are the things I often take to God and say, help, give me, I want, I need. What we're going to see in today's text as we open it up is that there's somebody asking God a very similar question. And if you move too quickly, you'll be tempted to move beyond answering this for yourself. If God would do one thing for you, what would you ask of him? And what we're going to see today is that when we ask this question of God, God goes beyond what we're asking to give us what we really, really need. Take a look. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. First thing to note, and I have to set this up, because when you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you come across texts like we're gonna see in Mark 2, and you see these profound miracles, we tend today to get hung up on the miracle itself and to think to ourselves that that is the goal. That is not the purpose of the story itself. The purpose of the story is found right here. And in fact, you see it in Mark chapter one, and throughout the book of Mark, we see a phrase similar to this. Jesus taught, Jesus said to them, Jesus revealed to them God's word, something along those lines over and over and over because these are what we call sign miracles. The miracles pointed to the teaching, pointed to the thing that was really the big deal. And that's critical to get this. And here we see Jesus has now arrived at Capernaum and there are so many people in the house, there's no more room in the house. And so the people have gathered outside the house. In fact, there's so many people in front of the house, you couldn't even get to outside the door. It was just jam packed. Now let's look at verse three. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So apparently there is a paralyzed man. He's an adult man. He's probably somewhat heavy. There's four friends carrying him on a mat. They're likely carrying him perhaps with some sort of rope system that allows them to maybe carry over the shoulders or something similar. And those are going to become in handy in just a moment. So when they get there, they find probably because of the weight that they had to carry and how slow that made their journey, however far their journey was, that when they got to where Jesus was, they couldn't even get to the door. And Jesus is teaching and everybody's consumed with themselves, but not these four friends. 
So they take their friend up on top of the house and they dig a spot out of the roof. Now, I don't know about you, I don't have a context for this. It's not until you travel to other parts of the world, like when we go to visit Carrie India, our missionaries in India, and you get to see how different parts of the world live, you get a little bit better of a context of what this might have looked like. There's a, one of the commentaries I looked at for this says this, archeological discoveries in Capernaum reveal that the houses were made of rough basalt without mortar, and they could not support more than a thatch roof. The sloping roof consisted of wooden cross beams overlaid with a matting of reeds, branches, and dried mud. It had to be replenished and rolled every fall before the onset of the winter rains. It did not take a jackhammer for the men to break through the roof, and it could easily be repaired. I'll just give you a picture of what this could have looked like. This is just a modern day kind of rendition. You kind of get an idea here of the men lowering their friend down through the roof. You can see the ropes here, the wooden sort of whatever board they put together, and then the man on top who was paralyzed. The other picture we have kind of shows you uh, just what lowering down would have looked like as they were trying to get the man in. This is obviously a cartoon drawn picture, but it gives you a little bit of an understanding of what it might have looked like. So a thatch roof, you've got branches and mud and things coming together, and they would have repaired these all the time. But it says the men had to dig into the roof. They had to kind of work at it and get a hole big enough for their friend to be lowered down into. And I don't know exactly how disruptive this would have been, but I imagine if anybody was sitting in their house and somebody started digging out your roof, you would stop all teaching. Everybody would have stopped if they were eating a meal, if everybody were, whatever was happening, everybody would have stopped and just looked at what was happening above them. And now that all eyes are focused on the men and on the guys who are lowering their friend down, Jesus, as they're lowering him down, looks at him and finally does the most profound thing you can imagine. He says in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. Do you think that's why they brought him? Do you think that's why their friend is there today? Do you think for a second that's what they want to hear? They did not just climb up on top of the house. They did not just dig through the ceiling in order to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. They brought their friend so he could be healed. And we have no idea how he got paralyzed. Maybe they're somehow complicit in his accident. Maybe he was born this way. Maybe he's a, a family member of some sort. We really don't know any details, but you could bet they didn't bring him to have Jesus say, you're forgiven. Here's the thing. If God were to do one thing for us, would we ask for the right thing or would we ask for the wrong thing? Here's maybe a better way of asking this. What if Jesus gave you what you want? Let's make this real for a minute. Coronavirus is going around. That's why we're doing church online right now, right? What if Jesus were to turn the economy around so that you didn't take a single financial hit? What if you didn't lose one day of pay or one day of work? What if you actually got a raise in the midst of it? What if your retirement plan didn't crash? What if your uh, family member, your loved one, didn't get the coronavirus? What if you didn't get it? What if God protected your children? What if all of that happened? 
Now let's fast forward and imagine God answered all those prayers and we're 100 years into the future from right now. Where are you? The reality is every single person Jesus healed died. There is nobody walking around today who is from the first century who's like this paralyzed man going, I just can't die. I just can't find a way to move on. He's, he's not walking around anywhere. Sooner or later, death caught up to him. And here's the real question. From that moment forward, was his life different? And if so, what made his life different? In a book that I absolutely love, and I challenged our church to read a few years ago, it used to be called The King's Cross. It's now called Jesus the King. And in the book, Timothy Keller references a lady whose name is Cynthia Heimel. And she writes about when she used to meet uh, upcoming actors and actresses. And she'd meet them at restaurants or coffee shops or perhaps at a theater taking tickets. And they're just trying to make it. They're just trying to make ends meet while they break through. And she's kind of uh, pontificating on how these people who are literally working so hard, giving up so much to finally get what they believe they really, really need to be happy in life. And she says what's fascinating is when they do succeed and they finally break through and they get their big break and they make their money and whatever, whatever it is, they're miserable and they become miserable people. She actually says this, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed the morning after each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She goes on to say, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. I don't know if that's true, but I think what she's recognizing is what if God actually gave you what you want? Would it really accomplish in your heart what you hope that it will? What Jesus reveals in Mark chapter two is what we're really asking God for most of the time. And I realize there are exceptions to the rule out there. Most of the time, what we're really asking for is not the thing that we really, really need. It's not the thing that is most important. Take a look at Mark chapter two, verse six. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why did this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this is important. There are many groups happening in the story. You've got Jesus. You've got the paralyzed man. You've got his friends. You've got whoever's house this is. And here we see the religious teachers. That's what teachers of the law means. This doesn't mean a lawyer in the sense that we think of it today. It's the religious expert. It's the people who are watching this video who have all the answers for everybody all the time. And they know exactly how everything ought to be all the time. And they'll point right to the verse or the text that says, you must or you must not or else. And those are the guys. And they look at Jesus 
And they're hanging out because they don't know what to think. Realize in Mark's story, we're at chapter two. We don't know what to make of Jesus. We don't know what to think yet, where the story is going. Who does this guy think that he is? Only God has the right and the power to forgive sins. And there it is. That's the key. Mark's letting you know what they're thinking, but Mark's letting you into a little bit of insight. See, if only God has the power to forgive sins, then Jesus is saying something when he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. I want you to think about this. If you're watching this video online, maybe church is something you're still struggling with. You don't know what to think. You don't really know what to do with God or or the world or anything else. You're just kind of wrestling with all this stuff. You need to get this one. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. Jesus never even thought of himself as a good moral teacher. Jesus would have said, I'm a terrible moral teacher to say the things that I'm saying if they aren't true. Meaning when Jesus says, I forgive someone of their sins, he's actually claiming to be God. He's not claiming to have the power of God. He's not claiming to be able to speak on behalf of God. The prophets in the Old Testament did that. But even when they did that, they would say things like, the Lord says. Jesus simply claims power. Jesus simply claims authority and says, I say, I forgive. In fact, look at verse eight. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, verse 12 is critical because it says he got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And of course, they hadn't. Now, a few things to note real quick. If you are still out there and you're struggling with faith, and you may even look at a story like this and say, that is why. See, that's why I have a problem with the Bible. Not only do Christians sometimes not act in ways that are kind or loving or nice, but the Bible just says really kind of weird, out there, impossible stuff. And as a Christian who believes these stories, I can tell you, yes, and there are stories far worse than that. But I also know this. These books were written within the lifetime of the people that we're talking about. It would not have been hard for anybody in the first century to go to Capernaum and say, I want to track down the man who was paralyzed and was healed by Jesus. If he was still alive, he could have been there to say, it's me, it was me, I did it. And if he was dead, his children or his wife, if he had one, or his parents or his neighbors, or perhaps the four men who carried him that day could easily have said, I was there, or I saw it, or it was me, or I knew him his whole life when he was paralyzed, and I knew him afterwards when he was healed. See, that's the point. We can say we don't agree with what the Bible teaches, but we have to have an explanation that makes sense of the facts, and it's very, very difficult to do that. Because these are eyewitness testimonies. 
And many people that day gave glory to God for what Jesus did, but perhaps none more than this man. His whole life was changed. But why was his life changed? And his life was changed not because Jesus gave him what he wanted, but also because Jesus gave him what he needed. See, Jesus has the authority to give you what you need. But the hard part when we come to Jesus is we often ask for the wrong things. Throughout my life, I've asked to be the athlete. I've asked for God to heal and protect. And it's not that any of those things are bad. It's just they aren't ultimately what I need. What do I really need? What I really need is a right relationship with God. Because the reality is for all of us, I'm sitting here right now at 43 years old. I'll be 44 this year. And I don't know how many years I have left on the earth. Maybe 40 years. Maybe 50. If God were gracious to me, 60. Maybe not. And at the end of my last day, I will stand before my Father in heaven and he will say, what did you do with the life that I gave you? And on that day, I want to be able to look at him and say, I did every day to the best of my ability, I surrendered to you. I served you, I love you, and to hear him say these words that Jesus says that the Father can say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now let me put you in charge of many. The only other option, we're told, is that Jesus can look at us, that God the Father can look at us. We're told Jesus is a judge. That's why I use them synonymously. And Jesus can look at us and say, away from me, I never knew you. Not only that, but Jesus tells a story at one point. He says, and on that day, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. We cast out demons. We healed people. We took the name of Jesus and we did amazing things to the ends of the earth. Look, Jesus, we bring with us all of our activities to show you just how awesome we are. And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. See, I tell you this story not to create anxiety or fear in you. And some of you who love God and have a relationship with him, you'll be anxious about this message. This message isn't intended to create anxiety. It's intended to create desire. Desire for the things that are most important. What if God removed this virus from the earth tomorrow? He snapped his fingers and said, that's it. It's done. It's over. It's had its course and no more. How many billions of people in the world today would still be playing games with God? There's no way to know that. In fact, you can't even know what your children will do one day or your spouse may do one day or your parents will do one day or your neighbors or your siblings or whoever. You know the only person you can answer this question for? It's you. And for me, it's me. Jesus says this in Mark chapter eight. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? I mean, what if Jesus were to give us everything we're asking for? The money, the market to change, the jobs back, the employees, success and health and vitality and life and more life and more years and more kids and bigger houses and more cars and more clothes, more shoes, less stress, more family time, less family time, whichever it is you're desperately wanting God to give you right now. What if he were to give you that and it didn't take you where you really needed to go? What if it didn't ultimately do what you'd hoped it would do? I love the way Timothy Keller puts this. In the book, Jesus the King, he says, you know what Jesus is saying to the paralyzed man? He's saying, I'm not gonna play that rotten joke on you. 
I'm not just going to heal your body and let you think you've got your deepest wish. He gave him both. He both healed the man and forgave his sins. Now, which one did the man need more? I'm guessing he was extremely thankful that Jesus did both. Jesus gave him what he really needed along with what he asked. And I wanna be careful. I'm in no way, shape, or form saying if you come to faith in Jesus, whatever it is you want, you'll get Jesus in that too. See, when you truly come to faith in Jesus, you'll find you don't necessarily care about the other. I desperately want God to protect and to heal and to restore and to redeem my life and all these other things around me. But at the end of the day, I've got Jesus and Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I know that and I believe that and I live my life by that. And I want that for you. I really do. So look, there's three great ways that we can apply this message to our lives. And depending on where you are as you watch this video will dictate how you receive this message. So let's just take each of these. Number one, number one, if you're sitting out there and you've never given your life to Jesus, and maybe you've been asking God to do something for you, but what you really need, and you're coming to that conclusion now, is you really need Jesus to give you Jesus. You really need him. You need forgiveness. You need a right relationship with God. If that's what you need, you could literally right now pull out your phone and text CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, to 317-565-4911. You don't have to text CONNECT to be right with God. In the book of Acts, chapter three, verse 19, Peter, who was probably there that day in Mark's house, says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And I love that. And I use that verse a lot because the word repent literally means to change your thinking, change your mind about the way you see God and the way you see the world. Change your thinking and change your mind to align with God and what he's trying to do in you. And what you could do right now, sitting in your family room, your kitchen, your car, running on a treadmill, wherever you are, you could offer your heart to Jesus right now. You could pray a prayer that just simply says, God, I know that I have not been aligned with you. Will you forgive me and, and help me and save me? In Jesus' name, amen. Then if you've prayed that kind of prayer, whatever word you use, there's no magic in the words, then you could text us because we wanna to talk to you about baptism. We wanna to talk to you about how to have a relationship with Jesus so that you do get there. You're not one of those people who says, look at all these great things I did. And he says, I never knew you. We want you to know him, to walk with him, to spend time with him, to be with him. And you may have no idea what that actually looks like in everyday life. And we want to help. And that's the purpose for the texting connect to 317-565-4911. That's why it exists. Reach out. We've already got people scheduled to be baptized on Easter. We're still figuring out what that's gonna look like. But if you wanna be one of them, you text now and we will work it out with you as well. The second way we can apply this message is to give. Now I get it, if you're watching online, we've had hundreds and hundreds of more views than we normally have on a weekly basis. It's not even close. So we know there are people out there either coming from other churches or just checking out God right now because life is stressful and you need God. And we agree with you. So this probably isn't for you. But if you've been blessed by these messages, we believe that everybody needs these truths. All the people out there who are afraid of the virus, all the people out there who are sick and hurting need the ministry of the church. And Kingsway isn't the only church. 
Listen, if you're watching online and you attend a different church who doesn't have the ability to project a service or you're tuning in, as some people have told me they're doing, praise God, don't give us your tithe. You go to your church, you go to your pastor, and you say, the ministry of the church needs to keep going forward. People need the truth of Jesus. But if you're watching this and you take part in Kingsway, join us. Go to kingswaychurch.org backslash give and you could do it all digitally online right now. Because the dollars that you give are paying for missionaries and ministries in our community and to the ends of the earth to make sure everybody knows that God loves them. Number three, and this is important. We've been wrestling hard with, and Brett covered some of this at the beginning of the this whole message here today. We've been wrestling hard with how do we be active as the church and our community. See, when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and went up to heaven, he left you and me behind to be the work of God here on earth. That paralyzed man had a choice to make. Would he choose to get up off the mat and be healed? But his four friends had a choice to make too. And what if those four friends had decided not to come? What if only two of them that day or one of them that day? And what if he didn't have enough means or strength to get the job done? The reality is it takes the whole body coming together and playing their part and saying, you know what? This isn't just about me. This is about others and their needs too. We've been working with Avon and Brownsburg and Plainfield. We've been working with our missionary partners like Sheltering Wings and Wheeler and Family Promise. We've been trying to figure out how do we coordinate resources together. And you can go to kingswaychurch.org backslash we are the church. Put an underscore between each of those. We underscore our underscore the underscore church and you can get there. Or just go to the website and click the button. But go there and let us know that you want to serve. Go there and you can find ways to let us know you have a need. Because we already have people coming out of nowhere saying, I don't know what to do, but I don't just want to sit around my house and play on my iPad and play with my kids. I want to be the church. And church, let's rise up. Let's rise up. Let's rise up and serve our community in the name of Jesus. And as we celebrate communion, there's two pieces to it. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he gathered the disciples together and he took bread and he broke it and he handed it to the disciples. And he said, this is now my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup of juice and he said, drink this. This is my blood poured out for you in remembrance of me. So this is a critical part of what we do as Christians because we are literally eating and drinking the forgiveness of God. As we do this weekly at Kingsway, we are reminded that Jesus died on the cross to give us that right relationship with God. It's not something we strive for or feel anxious about. We have it because of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus poured out and hung on the cross. The cross, more than anything, for the children at home watching, it means God loves you. That's what it means. So right now, take the piece of bread or the cracker or whatever you have and eat it and pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for being obedient to the Father, for giving up your life, your body as a sacrifice for us. And doing that, you lived the life we failed to live and you died the death we deserve to die so that we could be made right with God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Eat the bread. And now take the juice. And remember, this represents the blood of Jesus. Throughout the Bible, 
animals were sacrificed and their blood was sprinkled on the altar for the forgiveness of the sins of the Israelites. All of that, the sheep and the goats and the bulls, when their blood was spilled, it was to point us to Jesus. What could a blood of an animal possibly really actually do? But when the son of God came, took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived the perfect life and then died on the cross, his blood effectively gave us the power so that when Jesus looked at the paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven, it was proven on the cross. And when he looks at you and says, your sins are forgiven, your confidence is not in you working harder. Your confidence is right here, which is why we do this weekly. Let's pray and drink. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for giving him as a gift to us. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to suffer and to die, for your blood to be spilled, that we could drink some juice and ourselves not have to do anything but trust in you. And we do, because you are so good and so faithful. It's in Jesus' name. Drink the juice. We pray today's message has been an encouragement to you, a challenge, a blessing. Please don't let whatever the Lord is saying to you pass. If you sense that God is moving you and stirring in you in some way, whether it's to give your life to him for the first time, remember the paralyzed man had to raise his hand and say, I will choose to walk. He could have stayed on the mat and done nothing. And you could too. But perhaps like the paralyzed man, you'll get up and trust the Lord. And just like his friends, he chose to bring him to the Lord. They chose to do that. If God is stirring in you to partner with his church and churches all across this community and the world, don't wait another moment. Step up and do something. We love you.